Hey, what's going on, guys? This is Logan with West Desert Shooter, and this is the next installment of the Muzzle Blast podcast. Um, as you can probably hear my voice, it's a little deeper than normal. Um, I actually woke up with a cough this morning, and I'm really starting to feel pretty terrible. So before I lose my voice completely, I'm going to go through and do a podcast where uh, I put up a Ask Me a Question on Instagram. My Instagram handle is West Desert Shooter, no spaces, no underscores. Um, you can find me there, and you can find that link in almost every video description that I've put out, um, the link to my Instagram, along with a little text that says, follow me on Instagram. It's basically YouTube and Instagram is where I'm most active on. I really enjoy Instagram, putting up pictures of the rifles, talking with other people on there, learning from other people. Uh, it's a really great platform for long-range shooting um, or just a bunch of gun guys on there. Everybody's got their little raced out Glocks, and uh, I've got my little basic boring CZ P07. I guess that's something I haven't really even addressed on uh, on my YouTube, is I've got a CZ P07. I had a SIG 938, ended up uh, selling that off um, and picking up the P07, basically because the, the P07 had way more rounds capacity. The SIG 938 is basically a mini 1911. And it was uh, 7 plus 1, and that was with the extended mag. And uh, it was 6 plus 1 without the extended mag. The CZP07 has uh, a 15-round capacity plus 1. And I always run one in the pipe, hammer down. It's a double single action. You have the choice of uh, putting a decocker on there or, um, or a safety lever. And I've left it with a decocker. So once I rack one in the chamber, decock the hammer, then it's ready to rock and roll. So, excuse me, I'm just taking a drink there. Um, so I'm going to go through here. I'm, I don't know everybody's real name, so I'm just going to go by uh, their Instagram handle. And I have a list of questions that they've asked me, and I'm going to get into the answers as deep as I feel is necessary. So... I believe this is in uh, chronological order to whoever answered these um, or asked these questions. So we'll start off. And the first one I got was from Instagram user The Crawfish. So his question for me is thoughts on 300 PRC. Now I've actually I've gone back and forth on building a 300 Win Mag or not. A 300 Win Mag was my first rifle, and it recoiled a little more than I liked. Granted, it was just a Remington 700 SPS, and it was pretty lightweight for a 300 Win Mag. Great for carrying around the mountains and hunting with, but not so great for just target shooting. Um, I've also toyed with the idea of getting a 30-06, but I don't know if that's quite up to the speed that I'd like to be at. And so I think this 300 PRC fills a really nice niche. Uh, I think it's going to end up right between those two. It is non-belted because uh, really these days you don't need a belted mag. I call them nozzlers and the Remington Ultra Mags. They don't run a belt. It's not really necessary. And you can headspace off the shoulder. You can get your cartridges a little better dialed in for your specific rifle. So actually, I'm really excited for the 300 PRC. I'd like, I really would like to uh, try it out at some point. And oh man, I believe Atlas Development Group makes. 6.5 PRC brass. I'm not entirely sure if they're going to offer. <clears throat> offer 300 PRC brass. Um, really, that's my only hesitation with like brand-specific cartridges. Is uh, I'm always worried about component availability. Like the Nosler line, sure, they're really cool. They're little hot rods of each caliber. Um, but component availability has kind of always scared me. And granted, I'm not really a speed king. I don't need to have the fastest of any caliber available. But I would hope that that 300 PRC would spit rounds out right around 2,900 to 3,000 feet a second. Obviously, it's going to depend on bullet weight, but I think it fills a nice niche. So, yeah, I do like the 300 PRC. Now, the next couple questions um, come from a guy, Long Gun Jr., and he actually sent in three questions. Okay, two. Um, I got a couple duplicate questions. I wonder if something was up with Instagram to where, like, people would submit a question and it would submit two responses. Okay, so Long Gun Jr. asks, dye differences 
competition match for S-Type. Now, between different brands, there's going to be slight differences. Like, I think the names competition and match really just comes down to the different brands. I know that Hornady does a, uh, a match set of dies, and then, like, Redding has their competition seating die. Um, so as far as the difference on those, I'm really not sure. Nobody calls their dies just standard run-of-the-mill. Like, <laughs> they've always got to add that little match or competition on top of there. Although, the competition seating die, I think, usually has the... Uh, micrometer seating die on top of it. Now that might not be true, but if it is, that might be where the competition name comes from. Now S-Type uh, it refers to Redding's bushing system. So you're going to have a bushing that controls your neck tension, and you can remove that, and if you do that, it effectively turns the die, well, if it's a neck-only die, if you remove the bushing, it's not going to do anything. Um, you can swap those out to change how much neck tension you have on the bullet, which will affect different pressures. Um, actually, if you increase your neck tension, typically you'll get just a little bit of velocity, but I think if you increase it too much, A, it's going to be weird to seat bullets, and obviously there's a limit, and eventually you're going to start messing up necks. Like, you don't want too much neck tension. You really want three thousandths to one and a half thousandths, and I think I run about one and a half or even down to one on my Creedmoor with uh, an expander mandrel that I run. Granted, that's not what we're talking about here. Um, S-type bushings. So I've got a full-length S-type 7mm SOM die. Excuse me, guys. I'm just grabbing a drink when I go quiet there. Um, full-length S-type bushing die. So... Essentially, it's a full-length die, and then I take the expander ball out so it never touches the neck, and only let that bushing control the neck tension. Um, if you take the bushing out of my die, nothing's touching the, the neck anymore, and it effectively makes it a Redding body die. So I can actually bump shoulders back on loaded cartridges if I wanted to, or if I'm just messing with the brass and I don't want to mess with the neck tension, maybe I've already sized the neck somehow, and I don't want to affect, I don't want to change what's going on there, I can uh, just bump the shoulder if I need to. So hopefully that answered some questions. Basically, the die differences between competition and match, I would think most of them are going to be the same. Really, the biggest differences in dies here, what you're talking about, <clears throat> is... Full-length dies, meaning it touches the neck, the shoulder, and the body of the case. So from the shoulder down to the head of the case, um, it's going to touch all that. You also have a neck-only die, which will only touch the neck, which controls the, the tension on the bullet. Um, and it will change the opening size on that to hopefully give you a little bit of grip on that bullet. Um, what's cool about the different bushings is you can order specific bushings for different cartridges, and uh, you can run more or less neck tension. And also, you can do wildcatting with dies like that. So you can get a series of dies to move the neck down into different sizes. Like, uh, I know a guy who runs a 22 Grindle, and so what he does is he starts off with a 6.5 Grindle die, and then he changes to a 6mm bushing, and then he drops all the way down to a 22mm bushing. So, or not a 22 millimeter, a 22 caliber bushing. And so it takes a 6.5, turns it into a 6 Creedmoor, which is, not a 6 Creedmoor, a 6 Grendel, which is called 6 millimeter AR. And then he turns it into a 224 Grendel, is what he markets it as. Um, so that's something cool about the S type bushings. Um, Long Gun Jr.'s second question is what dies for precision 6.5 Creedmoor? Now, I don't necessarily think that any particular die is, like, bad for 6.5 Creedmoor. Um, I actually use the most basic dies there are for my 6.5 Creedmoor. I use a Lee full-length sizer, a Lee seating die, and then I add a K&M ex neck-expanding mandrel. So I will full-length size my Creedmoor, 
And then I go back in and adjust the neck tension by expanding it back out with a die that runs on the inside of the case neck and expands it out to a specific diameter, which holds just enough tension on a bullet to hold it in the case. Um, if I was running a semi-auto rifle, I'd just run it through the Lee full-length sizing die and call that good. I guess that's something I should touch on. In an AR, you want more neck tension. You're going to want 3,000 somewhere in there. If you drop down to 1,000, you're going to start running the risk of, in the semi-auto action, setting bullets back as you go. So, hopefully that answers your question there, man. Now, R. Banger Brandt asked me a question. Uh, best way to get extreme spread down while reloading? This is a great question. And I really wish I had a better answer for it, um, obviously, just so that I knew it, uh, knew the answer to this. It can be a combination of things. Um, the primer itself can change your extreme spread, and uh, that will also lead to lower standard deviations. We're talking about differences in velocity here is what he's, is what he's asking about for reloading. So, I mean, it starts from the primer. Your brass cartridge itself can have effects on this. If you have really thick brass and then the next piece is really thin, there's a difference in the amount of room that the powder sits in. That will change the pressure, and it's going to change how fast your bullet comes out of the barrel. So uh, it can start there. Um, I, th I think a big, what makes a really big difference is powder charge. Between powder charge and neck tension, I'm going to say that those are the two biggest ones that are most easily tuned. Um, so powder type, powder type, powder charge, and neck tension are gonna be the three big ones there. Because you wanna time uh, your barrel and get it just in that sweet spot where it's shooting really consistent velocities. And a lot of people test this by uh, the Satterley load development. They'll shoot 10, uh, they'll shoot 10 charges that increase by a specific amount of powder. Now look at the velocities on a graph, and any time the velocities kind of plateau off, like you have three in a row that shoot really similar velocity, you pick the middle one, and that should give you room on the low end or the high end to give you uh, really consistent velocities. Now, I measure every single one of my charges, but once you're in that sweet spot, it's more forgiving, um, if that makes any sense. It, it, helps, with, uh, it helps with that. Um, neck tension, I saw a decrease in my extreme spread when I dropped my neck tension on my Creedmoor. Now, I haven't done enough testing to really figure out if that's true for just everything. If that's true, that's easy enough. But, uh, no, I think it's going to be specific to each cartridge and each rifle you have. Um, maybe one of my rifles, if I increase the neck tension, depending on the combination of components, it could also uh, lower my extreme spread. So, um, that's my opinion. Again, I'm not the expert on that, but that's, those are some things you can definitely try. Those will make a difference. So get some good quality brass. Uh, you can change different primers. I mean, you can usually find a hundred primers for like three bucks. So, and five bucks for the match stuff. So try some different brands of primers. Like I like CCI, I like federal gold metal match. And those are really the only two I've messed with. Um, I have tried Remington's, um, but I wouldn't say that any of them are like some magic thing. I know that the real long-range guys typically go to the Federal Gold Medal match, which is what I've been running lately. The only downside is sometimes those are extremely hard to find just because so many people buy them. Okay. Next question from Chad Rides BMX. Um, do you think carbon from flash holes... Oh, I'm sorry. Do you think cleaning carbon from flash holes every reloading is advantageous? Um, this is a good question. I've heard it mentioned on other channels, although I haven't done any testing myself. But the channels that I've... I believe I heard David Tubb mention it. Um, he said that he's run tests and it makes no difference. I run my brass through an ultrasonic cleaner, which inherently cleans that out a little bit, and then I dry tumble them. If you're doing wet tumbling, you're going to clean that out as well. It definitely isn't going to hurt anything. Um, 
depending on how you're cleaning it. Uh, if you're starting to like erode that brass, that might be that may become an issue. But I mean, scrape it out if you want. If it doesn't bother you, leave it in there. Simple as that. Like uh, the last podcast I did with Justin Crosby, he doesn't even clean his brass. He'll decap it, resize it, load it up again. Doesn't touch the primer pockets, nothing. And then he says once the brass feels like the primer pocket is too loose, he'll check it. So, I mean, do what you want It's as far as your own OCD goes, um, as, if you're going to clean those or not. Uh, my Part of my cleaning process is just inherently do that. Um, I used to scrape out every flash hole, but I don't know if it ever made a difference. Now, this is kind of funny. Uh, the next three guys that asked me a question asked me the same question. First one who submitted it was Von Precision. Next one, the Colorado Reloader. And the next one was B. Melton. Um, so Von Precision asks, what's your next rifle build going to be? Uh, Colorado Reloader said the same thing. B. Melton uh, elaborated a little bit. Do you have any plans for another build? If so, what's the play? Now, since you guys are listening to the podcast, uh, I guess I'll let you in on my, my little plan I've got going on. Uinta Precision makes those really cool bolt-action uppers. Now, what makes them particularly cool is that you don't need a buffer system to make them run. So, what they are is a bolt-action AR-15 or AR-10 upper. So, I'm going to get one. And I'm going to take a buffer tube and I'll cut it down and have someone who knows how to weld aluminum uh, cut that little buffer tube down to where it's like, I think it's about an inch long, inch and a half long. So if you can imagine an AR-15 pistol grip comes up to the back of the receiver and then just a little inch and a half buffer tube sticking out there. The reason I need that inch and a half buffer tube is the bolt on the Uinta Precisions actually does come, does extend out of the back about an inch. I mean, your bolt isn't going to fall out as long as your upper is pinned to the lower. So it's not absolutely necessary, but it'll also keep dirt and debris out of it. And what I plan on doing is building a little tiny 300 blackout AR-15 pistol. And uh, I'm going to do like a 6 or an 8-inch barrel with a fast twist, like 1 to 7 or maybe even faster if I can find a barrel company that'll do it. I know that uh, the official Q is what they go by. Um, I know that they run a one to five twist on their 300 blackout in their little honey badger. So that's my plan for the next rifle build, uh, 300 blackout. Now on the bolt action, I'm going to, I'm going to do a left-handed bolt action. That way I can hold the pistol grip, uh, with my right hand and cycle the bolt with my left. I just think it makes ergonomic sense. It'll be fun. It'll definitely be unique. And, uh, I think we'll start seeing those pop up once I kind of get those out there. Um, I've talked to you into precision. Uh, they're really excited to work with me on that one, but I'm actually the one telling them like, we'll wait a little bit. I've got a bunch of new cartridges I'm working on. Like I still need to get my Valkyrie super dialed in and I've had that thing a year now. I've got a Grendel. I really haven't even shot all that much. I've shot that thing like 15 times. And then I've got my seven saw, which I'm super excited about. I want to get that out there. So I really just want to be able to give it the time that it deserves. So it's kind of sitting on the back burner for a little bit, as well as obviously it's going to take some cost of getting a lower for it, getting a custom buffer tube made, which will take some time. And then I'm going to run a little short barrel on it. And as part of 300 blackout, I definitely think those are pretty worthless without a silencer. So I am working on getting a silencer, but I haven't even started my waiting process yet. So it may be a little while, unfortunately. But uh, I'm hoping to have the rifle done before I get my silencer for sure. So that answers three of the questions. Um, let's see here. So I've got uh, Dossie96 asked me a question. Bushnell engage 4 to 16 by 44. Any good for long range? Now, I'll tell you what, dude. I'm sitting here on my couch. I'm on my phone. I've got the uh, voice recorder going. So let's just Google Bushnell engage 4 to 16 by 44 and uh, let's see what feature set it has i was planning on doing this before i sat down to do the podcast but uh i guess just laziness got the best of me it's right out of the gate msrp of 325 
um, four sixteen. That's a great magnification range. I really like that range. If you're doing some hunting, getting be, being able to get down to four power or less, I really think is advantageous for hunting. It's like out to three hundred yards, um, more than like four power. If you're trying to see a big field of view, like looking for coyotes or something in a wide open field, I I think the lower the magnification, the better. Honestly, like even out west, I could take a long shot with six power, not a problem. So taking a look at this one, uh, this one has the Deploy MOA reticle. Um, I'm assuming that this thing's going to be second focal plane. So typical tactical turrets on the outside. It's got a side parallax. That's all good. Um, deploy MOA, second focal plane. So depending on where the mag or where the reticle is a true MOA, like if it if at 16 power each line is one MOA, then as you back out to eight power, each line will be two MOA. And at four power, it should be four MOA. If I were to design that scope, that's what I would want it to do. I assume that Bushnell has their head on straight and that's what they did. Um, I like this reticle actually. Basically, it's just MOA hash marks with every fifth one is a little bit wider. So you can tell like five, 10, 15 really quick. And then it's got a single MOA hash marks out the left and right. I really like that style of reticle for long range shooting. It makes it easy for hold offs and uh, measuring how far off you were on target. Um, so for a little $300 scope, I mean, as long as it tracked decent, you can use your reticle to do holdovers. And as long as a reticle, depending on which magnification you're on, if it's accurate on the MOA, that seems like a great little setup, man. Uh, I don't think that there'd be anything wrong with that. Um, I haven't heard anybody really complain about Bushnell. Now I haven't particularly handled this specific scope or anything, but my initial impressions online. It seems like a good little scope. It's got all the features I'd be looking for. Uh, it doesn't look like it's illuminated, but I've never used my illumination while shooting, so I'm really not worried about that. Unless, again, we're talking about, like, dusk hours hunting. Um, so 325 seems like a decent deal. It's got all things that I would want except for first focal plane. And since we're talking this price range, uh, for 350 bucks. You can get the Vortex Diamondback Tactical 4 to 16 first focal plane in MOA, MOA, and that comes with their EBR2C reticle or whatever their mill reticle extension is. Um, so between those two, I'd probably go with the Vortex. Uh, but if you're dead set on this Bushnell, I mean, it seems like a good little scope. So hopefully that was uh, in-depth enough to handle, to give you a little bit of advice. Let you know what I thought about it. But again, I haven't seen or handled that scope, so take that for what it's worth. Right here. Next next question. Vlad Carnafel. Carnafel? Sorry if I'm getting your name wrong there, dude. Uh, asks, RCBS or Lee Press for beginner reloader? I think this strictly comes back to budget. I don't think you can go wrong with either one. The Lee is going to be a little more budget-oriented. And then uh, the RCBS is probably going to be a little higher quality press. Probably not going to be made of aluminum. More likely going to be like cast iron or uh, whatever other type of heavy metal they make their stuff out of. Uh, but I've had good success with my Lee press. I still use that even for my fancy cartridges and all that, trying to shoot super far. Uh, I know that Rex reviews of running a Lee for a long time. I don't know if he still does or not. But uh, at the time of the Sniper 101 videos, that's what he's running. So... Again, man, I don't think you go wrong with either one. Uh, I started with the Lee kit, and I still run most of it. <clears throat> but uh, if I would have had the money originally, I probably would have gone with the RCBS. It just seems like fewer parts of the kit were made of plastic. Now, on Instagram, I commonly get uh, a rash of shit from my buddies. So, <laughs> scrolling through the questions here. Let's see, two, four, six, eight. I've got quite a few questions here from Shooter 300. Uh, I actually recently went to an F-Class match with Shooter 300. Uh, his name's Riley. Uh, I met him at SHOT Show as well. That's where we first met, which is, it's kind of funny. I actually met quite a few people at SHOT Show for the first time uh, that lived close to me. I, I live in Salt Lake City, Utah, and uh, I had to go all the way to Vegas to meet a bunch of people that live like 30 miles from me. Which isn't that far away in Salt Lake City. So 
it, it's just kind of funny, like under circumstances where you'll end up running into people. That's where I met long range shooters of Utah. I still haven't seen or talked to him in uh, the Salt Lake Valley or even uh, the Southern Valley, which is uh, Provo and a bunch of other cities, whatnot. But unless you're local, you don't really care. Um, <laughs> so Shooter 300 asks a bunch of questions, but I, I do find that these will probably be good. At, uh, these will be good questions to have answered on a podcast. So first one he asks, how do you choose the right powder to use? Now, this is a good question for beginner reloaders. As a beginner, I have no idea what to do because I'd stand there and look at the entire wall of powders in front of you, and I just didn't know what to do. Now, um, I'm in America, so our powder choice is going to be different than uh, people in Australia, the people in England. So hopefully, I'll try and give you some advice that hopefully applies to where you're at. Um, get a reloading manual, and in the reloading manual, you'll find the cartridge you want, have a general idea of which bullet weight you want to shoot. Um, so let me give you an example. In 223, if I open it up from the light bullets all the way up to the heavy bullets, Varget is an option. So right away, I know that Varget is a versatile powder for the 223. It's going to be a good option to go with. Um, whether it performs well or not, at least it's going to cover a variety of things. So you can try a bunch of things to get it to work well with. Um, another thing that I look for, um, if you really have a bullet in mind that you're looking for, find a powder that has a wide range of charges that you can try and a wide velocity spread as well. Like, uh, some of them I've seen in reloading manuals, it'll be like, yeah, you can go from 30 grains up to 36 grains, but you're only going to pick up 200 feet a second in that six grain spread, which isn't much. So try and find one that's got a really wide velocity spread that it can go from the minimum up to the maximum. And uh, I, I like I like powders that I can really try and mess with charges as well. So up and down in the charges to really fine tune where I'm at and the velocities that I'm trying to achieve. I think that that's the easiest way to get some uh, powder dialed in is just being able, having a, a big window to play with. If you have a really limited window, like a fast powder in a heavier, heavy for caliber bullet, um, you're probably going to have a small window on that powder. So, uh, great question, Shooter 300. I appreciate it, dude. Um, how does temperature affect bullets? Now, I don't have an infrared heat gun. Unfortunately, I haven't really been able to like fully experiment with this. At its most basic, powder, when it gets hot, uh, burns hotter and higher pressures. And when it's colder, you get lower pressures and lower velocities. So if it's hot out, you're going to get more pressure. So when you're doing low development, you don't want to run it super hot when you're doing low development if it's cool outside. Because by the time it warms up, you may be into dangerous territory. Um, same goes for the opposite. If you're running like a minimum charge, if you get too low, you might start running into weird issues as well, particularly in AR-15s and gas guns and things of that nature. Uh, excuse me, guys. Um, <laughs> and then he just starts giving me the rash of crap here. Uh, he says, why do people cringe when I tell them I shoot a 6.5 Creedmoor? And he spells Creedmoor wrong. Um, <laughs> it's, it's a really popular cartridge. Uh, a lot of guys don't like to try new things. Um, and I think that's really what a lot of it plays into. It's, it's super popular and it's effective and a lot of people enjoy it. And a lot of people like to do their own thing. So when a bunch of people get on a bandwagon that was cool originally, and then they're like, ah, there's too many people that think this is cool. I'm out now. I, I'm not original anymore. And I think a lot of people play on that. Like uh, when the two, two when the two two four Valkyrie came out, it was the new cool thing to try. I got one, and uh, I was I mostly got one just to like make videos and content on to see what it was all about. I had already heard that there was like starting to be issues with it and whatnot. Um, so I just wanted to get one, see for myself how it shot and what kind of performance it had. And honestly, I think it's been it's been decent. Um, a lot of people really complain about the accuracy on the Valkyrie. Um, and I don't think that what they're calling bad is bad. Like they'll shoot a three quarter inch group and they'll be like, Oh, this is, this is gone as crap. There's, it can't even shoot accurately. It's like, well, 
let's see what you can do with the 223 AR first. And then I'll see what you can do with the 224 Valkyrie AR. Because most ARs don't shoot better than three-quarter inch. Three-quarter inch is a pretty good group. And so even with a Valkyrie, that's a pretty good group. I don't know what they're complaining about. But uh got off on a little bit of a tangent there. <laughs> um, how did Shooter 300 beat you at F-Class shoot? Well, uh, if you hit towards the center more often, you get more points. And he happened to shoot uh, a bullet in the center one more time than I did. And he beat me by one point by technicality. However, though, we were shooting in different classes, so therefore I wasn't competing against him, and uh, you didn't beat me. You were in your own class. I was in my own class. I was shooting open. He was shooting FTR. So there you go. Now, next question comes in. This guy has a really cool username. Uh, the whole nine yards. Now, if you guys are unfamiliar, um, I actually got this little history lesson from my grandpa, which I think makes it even cooler. Um, what the whole nine yards means, I believe it was back in World War One. they had ammo crates uh, for the guns and the planes, I believe. Now, a few of these details may be mixed up, but the general idea here, the general idea here is there. Um, so they had these big old ammo crates that they would set next to the uh, full auto machine guns out the uh, sides of the plane. And they were about three feet long. And so you could lay, you would fill the ammo box up by laying nine rows left to right, and it would fill the box all the way up. Being about a yard long, that's nine yards of ammo. And if you were shooting at someone and you just kept shooting and uh, you shot till you were empty, you let them have the whole nine yards. And that's where that comes from. Uh, so hopefully I remembered that correctly, but I, I heard that from my grandpa and I just thought it was really cool. And then I saw this guy on Instagram and, uh, that, that's a really cool username. I like it because not everybody knows what that is, but if you do know, it's, it, it's just cool. His question anyway, is uh, testing 22 LR for NRL 22 barrel conditioning between brands question mark. So pretty much. 22LR is a weird little animal by its own, man. Um, you really have to like get your bore seasoned up with the specific lead of the brand that you're shooting. Uh, basically, as you shoot, it leaves a fine coating of the lead or the lubricant that that bullet uses, and it takes a little while between, between switching brands. Like a centerfire rifle, pretty quickly you can change ammo and get the specific results of that different ammo as you shoot. It's so like if I had an AR with 55 grain and then 75 grain, if I shoot 20 55 grains, I can shoot five 75 grains and see what that performance is from the 75 grains. On a 22 LR, typically but when you switch, um, you're going to have to shoot quite a few rounds to really get that barrel seasoned into what you're looking for. And uh, at least with my Tika, that's been my experience. Now, typically when I switch, it'll shoot a really nice tight group, but to see how that ammo truly performs, I've got to shoot about 20 rounds or so, uh, maybe even more, up to like 50, and then that's really where you'll see how that ammo performs once it's got its own lubricant and its own leading in the barrel and see how that ammo consistently comes out of your barrel. So that's how I do my testing for my 22 lr Now, granted, I'm still pretty new to it, but that's what I've seen online. That's what I've heard, and I've actually seen that in my own experience. So, luckily, 22LR is cheap enough that you can change between brands, send down 50 rounds, you're out three to three to eight dollars for the good stuff. Um, the really good stuff, you're looking 15 to 30 bucks. But uh, pretty much at that point, that stuff should be shooting really good for you. So, take that for what it's worth. I'm not a 22LR expert, but that's kind of been my own experience. All right, the next question is coming in from uh, a couple of my buddies on Instagram here. This one is from Tactical Flannel, and he, he's got a great question. Is a carbon fiber barrel worth the additional cost over a high-quality, non-carbon-wrapped barrel? This is 100% dependent on application. If you want a lightweight rig, yep, carbon fiber is worth the cost, depending on where you're going, what you're doing. 
I think that most mountain hunters uh, that you're going to see chasing goats are most likely going to have a carbon fiber barrel. Now, one thing that I've heard is that some manufacturers' carbon fiber is stronger than the steel, which sounds great, until you shoot a bunch of rounds down a barrel. And uh, because there's a steel center in there, it's got the rifling and it's a little pencil barrel, and then they wrap it with carbon fiber to add rigidity. But I've heard that the carbon fiber is stronger than the steel is, and once you shoot it and get it really the center of it hot, that the uh, the steel has to go somewhere, and it actually closes in on itself instead of expanding out like traditionally. Uh, and I've heard that that can do some weird things with the way your rifle shoots. So like from what I've heard, the uh, carbon barrels will shoot really good three to five shot groups but if you get them hot around round 20 or so they start doing some weird stuff as far as i've heard i don't have any experience with it i haven't done it myself but people that i really trust that i know they know what they're doing have uh, told me that so but if you're looking for a lightweight rig you're going to take one to three shots at a mountain goat i would definitely go with the carbon barrel um just zero your rifle while it's cool um allow plenty of time between each shot to go for it and not only that, uh, it's going to be a lightweight rifle, most likely in a big chambering, punching you in the shoulder. It's not going to be pleasant to shoot. So you're probably not going to want to shoot it all that much. Um, so I wouldn't be too worried about the whole barrel heat thing. And they're going to be crazy expensive. You're not going to be wanting to shoot out that barrel. Okay, guys, uh, easy rack. Um, this is uh, one of the Uinta Precision guys. Um, he's He asks, so are you going to have my baby or what? And this is the... I don't even know. This this has been multiple times he's asked me this, but uh, I'm sorry, Baker. I just don't know if you know how the anatomy works or what. But uh, our chromosomes mixing together don't make a baby, man. That's just not how it works. So sorry, dude. It's probably not gonna happen anytime soon. Okay, uh, cowboy underscore JP. What is your method for finding the most accurate load? What is my load development method? Well, to start with, hopefully, I will have a fired piece of brass, whether I take out some test rounds and just get a couple down the barrel to make sure it functions. Um, at that point, I will have the head spacing of the rifle that I'm working with. At that point, I will push the shoulder back two thousandths, get that brass, uh, and make sure that the new brass that I'm shooting will fit in that chamber. If it doesn't, Obviously, you can take brand new brass and try and chamber it in your rifle. And if it doesn't fit, then go ahead and push your shoulders back until it starts to fit. But uh, hopefully you have a fire piece of brass, and then you can base the, uh, your reloading off of that. Push it back two thousandths, at which point it's time to throw a primer and powder in there. Like I say, I would pick a powder by uh, how much spread it has available, how much velocity spread it has available, and then the powder availability. Um, I do prefer Hodgdon just because it's widely available where I'm at, and I've had good performance from them. Like the H4350 Varget, I'm probably never going to have a cabinet that doesn't have H43 and Varget in it as long as I can maintain that. I mean, I'm, I shoot my powder. I don't treat it like it's anything too crazy. But hopefully I'll be able to keep a couple pounds on hand uh, pretty much indefinitely. Um, <laughs> and then at that point, Pick the bullet that I'm shooting. Choose a choose a couple different charge rates. Um, traditionally, I've gone out and just shot groups. Um, I will do anywhere from four shot, five shot groups, and then I'll do like half grain increments. Typically, even with the smaller cartridges, I'll do that um, just to get an idea where things are at and how it's shooting, what it likes. Because hopefully, I'll be able to go from like a mid powder charge up to a higher charge, and I'll usually go from like middle of the powder charges up to 80 to 90 percent of max what the books has listed um so I'll, uh, it's getting up there in pressure but i'm not trying to spike it out on my first outing now with my seventh psalm i loaded up 10 cartridges in 0.4 grain increments and uh went and did a pressure test first so i did 10 shots with h1000 and i did 10 shots with 4831 4831 i just didn't load it hot enough uh, i didn't get any pressure signs but I also didn't get the velocity I was looking for. Uh, H1000, I, up around round number seven. That's where I peaked out on my pressure, called it good, and then I came home and unloaded those three last remaining rounds. So that was my low development there. And then I came back and uh, started shooting for groups. Uh, 
Now, if I'm loading for a precision rifle that I don't have to worry about magazine length, then I will take a fired cartridge as well, and I will try and check distance to the lands. Now I've got a Hornady overall length gauge, thanks to Vaughn Precision. He got me hooked up with a case gauge that was fired directly in my chamber with my brass of my specific rifle. I sent it to him. So you fire it, don't resize it, don't do anything. Take it, mail it to Vaughn Precision. He'll drill and tap the bottom of it for your Hornady gauge, and then he'll mail it back to you. He got the turnaround time was awesome. I got it back really quick. I think I had a total of four days where I didn't have that piece of brass, and I had it back in my hands. But I mean, like, super affordable, and uh, he gets it back to you quick. So I will run my bullet into the chamber, see where the lands are, do that a bunch of times to get a really consistent number or a good idea of uh, where it should be, and then I'll back it off. Uh, so typically I'll do, like, half-grain increment charges, shoot those first, and then once I get an idea of where the accuracy might be, then I'll do a jump test. And those are for the rifles I really care about. Like, I've done it on my Creedmoor, and I'm doing it on my Somme, but uh, for my, my 223, um, that magazine length, there's really only so much I can do. So I typically just run at max mag length and call it a day with the heavier stuff. I don't run max mag length like a 50 grain. Um, so I'll just load that basically to what the book calls for. But typically on those shorter bullets anyway, they're more forgiving to jump. And uh, from there... Yeah, I'll do my jump test, and then I can tweak the powder charge from maybe two-tenths up, two-tenths down, and shoot the same charge again and see what it likes and just kind of tweak small things here and there, maybe do a little bit of neck tension work if I have the uh, option. But at that point, I should have a pretty good shooting round. And uh, typically, it takes me 50 to 75 bullets fired to do that. Now, I know that's not the most efficient, but I get a lot of information out of it. Uh, by the end of that, I know which charges it doesn't like. I know which ones it does like. And believe it or not, shooting a bad group is just as infor- has just as much information in it as shooting a good group does. Now I know what to avoid, which is, uh, which is a really good idea as well. <clears throat> so that's pretty much my load development. So that's how I go about finding the most accurate load for my rifles. Now we're down to our last two questions here, guys. Don't worry. Um, Our next question is from Perry41Arms. He says, Ultra Mags versus Alpha Mags versus Normally Mags. I think he meant Norma Mags, and his phone auto-corrected him. He said, pros and cons and go. So, Ultra Mags, uh, I don't know what Alpha Mags are, so let's just throw the Nozzlers in there. Ultramag, Nosler, and the Norma Mags. I really don't have a whole lot of interest in them, personally, for me. Um, I, I don't like recoil. I really don't. And I don't want to feed powder into my super thirsty cartridges, man. Like, I like to shoot and enjoy it, and I like to shoot and have it be affordable as well. So, I I kind of avoid the Magnums, really. Um, I'd say 300 PRC is about as close as I go to a Magnum. I have the short action Ultra Mag, but that only takes 60 grains of powder, and that's like pretty much as high as I really want to go at this point. Um, I've toyed with the idea of a 300 Ultra Mag or a 300 Rem, or 300 Win Mag. Sorry, I was going to say Remington Mag, and I was like, that ain't right. Um, but currently, with my seven SOM killing some time i don't think i need more than that really uh if i'm going above that i'm gonna go into like the big cartridges like a 375 shea tack i would love to have a 416 barrett but man they're so expensive <laughs> i follow uh, a couple long-range guys on instagram and uh, they they have their brass sponsored to them because of how expensive it is and uh I mean, they get like a box of 50 and they're just stoked, which is legitimately a couple hundred dollars for a 50 count box of like 416 Barrett. But man, that thing flies so awesome. I'd love to have one. Um, as far as the Ultra Mag, Rem Mag, Norma Mag, Nosler Mag, um, I, I don't know, man. They're all just shooting a big bullet really fast. Depends on how much part, powder you want to have it. Look at components availability. I know the Nosler Brass uh, quite frequently is out of stock, so be careful of that. 
I think the Ultra Mag Brass is quite regularly in stock. I know that uh, Atlas Development Group absolutely has Ultra Mag Brass. They have up to the 375. They have a 7 rum, 300 rum, 338. Um, so if you're looking for a rum brass, definitely check them out. Or for the 338 Edge, you can convert uh, some of the rum brass to 338 Edge. So that's also worth a look. Um, although Atlas Development Group has 338 bra edge brass as well. So <laughs> that's kind of their, your one-stop shop. That's kind of what those guys do is the big Magnum cartridges like that. So definitely check them out. But as far as performance and what my preference is, they're all going to shoot a big bullet really fast. They're all going to perform really well. It just comes down to which brand you want to pay for and uh, how often their components are available. And our last question of the day what was the best thing you have done to improve your shooting other than practice? And this comes from Enigma Gardener. Great question, dude. I really appreciate you submitting this one. Um, so I put up some videos uh, on Instagram, and I'm, I'm actually, I will say, lucky enough that I have uh, an army. I have an army sniper on there who follows me. And he's not one of these, oh, I'm an army sniper guy. Like, he's legitimate. I've seen him. He's a drill instructor now. And uh, in talking with him, I can tell that it's it's not bullshit. It's SRS rifles, which is Superior Rifle Systems, and it's Kane from there. Um, me and him have gone back quite a bit. And uh, just going back and forth on reloading, shooting, all that fun stuff, talking ballistics. And a uh, really good dude. Definitely worth checking out. Um, his page is off as a... And he also makes match grade AR-15s and uh, really, really good dude to talk to. However, I went on there, posted up a video of me shooting prone. And it was actually a video of my mile shot attempt with my 6.5 Creedmoor. And my phone is mounted on my rifle looking back at me. And you can see that my feet uh, occasionally are like kicking around and they're not, they're just not in the right stance. You can tell that. Like my, I'm lifting my legs occasionally and I'm taking shots sometimes with one foot up and then sometimes with it out of frame. Cause like you can't see behind my shoulders, but sometimes you can see the back of my feet stick up and he commented on that and he's like, dude, your prone position needs work go out there, spread your legs, get your ankles to the ground, lay your feet sideways, square up to the rifle. Cause I was, I was laying down with the rifle and put the rifle in my shoulder pocket and then I'd creep my left elbow really far forward. So there was like a 30 degree bend between the rifle and me, which doesn't translate well in recoil. Um, when your rifle recoils, I'm a right-handed shooter. Um, if the weight isn't behind it, the rifle's going to want to hop to the right. So I did all these things. I went out there. I put my legs down on the ground. I lined up square behind the rifle. It felt a little weird, but I just kind of forced myself to do it. And uh, I was able to get dialed in that way. And legitimately, in the last year, that has made more of a difference in my shooting than any reloading has, than anything else has. I truly feel that I've become a better shooter just by changing how I get behind the rifle. And uh, put that recoil pad right in your pocket. Let it, let it draw a straight line down your shoulder. Like Basically, the line should run down into your hip bone, and then your legs are going to be splayed out a little bit wider. Um, so you look like a Y shape on there, but, uh, keep your, keep your shoulders squared up to the stock. Don't let your left one creep forward, lay low. Um, I lay down with my, my forearms on the ground. Uh, I'm actually laying on my chest. I don't hold my, I don't hold myself up with my arms at all, which, uh, Riley actually questioned me on that at the F class. If I did, he was just out of curiosity if I did. And when I laid down behind the rifle, because I didn't remember if I did or not, um, I was pretty sure I didn't, but I I made a mental note of it, and I was like, in the middle of a string, I was like, okay, nope, I don't support myself with my arms. They're, my left hand squeezes the rear bag, my right hand squeezes the trigger. That's all I'm doing. So I'm not holding myself up with my arms, so everything is just super solid. The rifle's sitting there on the rear rest on its bipod. I'm laying down as flat as I can on the ground, super stable, and when the rifle recoils, it goes into my body, which my body, its full weight is going against that rifle. And the rifle has no has nowhere to go, but just straight back into my shoulder. And typically it pops right back out to where it was. 
and I'm able to watch my bullet fly and see my uh, spot my impact, whether it's a hit or miss, I'm able to see it there. So guys, this has been my podcast where I answer Instagram questions. So if you're interested in being able to ask me a question again, if you guys like this podcast or not, um, please let me know. Uh, a good way to let me know is through Instagram. Uh, this podcast doesn't have a video to it. I'm just sitting here on a couch. I'm a little bit sick. That's why my voice sounds like crap. And uh, I'm a little bit too lazy to get in front of the camera, get everything set up tonight. So I'm sitting here in my voice recorder, got my little AirPods on. Um, hopefully the audio is decent. But I really appreciate everybody asking me any questions. Uh, I know that I can see how many people viewed the question box versus how many people dropped a question. I mean, dudes, drop a question in here. I started out as a beginner. Whether you think your question is dumb or not, don't don't think that any question is stupid. Like I've I see people on my YouTube as well. They'll be like, they may, this might sound really dumb, but what does a twenty MOA base mean? And you're not dumb. There's absolutely a point in time where I had to learn that. And just because I know it now doesn't mean that I would think you're dumb for not knowing that. So don't be afraid to reach out and ask any questions. Even if it's just in a direct message, most likely I'll just reply back there and I'm not going to like publicly put you out there. Um, so please do. I, I really like helping people because when I was learning how to do long range shooting, I asked other people questions and I was able to gain a skill set from it. So really one of the original reasons that I started a YouTube channel is because I don't financially, I'm not really able to like support the content creators out there. And so I figured what, a, what better way than to help the community than to offer more information. Like I I'm using all this information from the, from YouTube. How about I start contributing? And that's legitimately one of the reasons why I started doing this. So again, thanks everybody for listening. Uh, Go follow my Instagram. Follow all the dudes who ask me questions. Uh, they're all great guys. Uh, I recognize most of them. There's a couple of them I didn't, but maybe I'll go back through and check their profile and give them a, give them a follow if it's, if it's something I'm interested in. Okay, guys, Mosul Blast podcast. Um, I should have apparel available shortly. I've ordered some uh, samples. I've got West Desert Shooter samples coming, and as well as I've got just a cool T-shirt design that uh, – doesn't really say what it says West Desert Shooter on the sleeve, but the front is uh, kind of an inside thing to where if you're not a shooter, you might not know what it's talking about. But if you are a shooter, you absolutely pick it up. And so far, everybody I've sent it to have said that it's really cool and that they like it. Until next time, this is Logan. I run the West Desert Shooter stuff and the Muzzle Blast podcast. Thank you for listening, and we'll catch you guys next time.